Blog Talk Radio. Hi there, I'm Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio, and this show is a celebration of baby boomers who are embracing life as we grow older. Of course, we know, however, if we want to continue to celebrate our lives as we age, we have to be mindful not only of our physical health, but our mental health as well. And that's why today's show is going to be especially meaningful and interesting. Our guest, Dr. Mitch Klianowski, who's a board-certified neuropsychologist, and his physician, psychiatrist wife, Dr. Emily Klianowski, have joined forces to write an important and valuable resource that each of you is going to want to add to your own personal library. The book is entitled Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain, not to share it, shave your brain, (laughs) save your brain, and this, as we know, is a critical topic for every boomer out there. I have had the real pleasure of interviewing both of these doctors back in October, and they were so helpful that I've asked them to join us again to share even more of their findings, and I want to personally thank both of you for making a repeat appearance, because you're your words of wisdom are very important to all of us. So welcome. Like bad petties, we keep showing up again. <laughs> Thanks for having Not us. Not bad petties. Thanks for having us back, Eileen. <laughs> well, well, last time I was so impressed and moved and really uh, inspired by what you had to share. I, I am thrilled that you've, you're taking the time to come back again. And I would like to begin, I think I did this last time as well, but to really congratulate you because the book is an all-encompassing resource. It's certainly valuable, and I'm the the only one who thinks that. Uh, You've gotten a lot of positive reviews from physicians and experts in the field of neurology, dementia prevention, and gerontology. So your peers, that had to make you feel awfully good. It did. It really did. It's always nice to be appreciated. In fact, one of the reasons why we chose Johns Hopkins Press as our publisher was we wanted to elevate the book on a science level because there's a bunch of hoops that you have to jump through if you go through an academic publisher like that. I don't think most people know that, but there are a number of other publishers out there who are just looking for how popular will the book be rather than is this based on real science and things that people can count on. There's so much fad, there's so much fancy in the area of dementia prevention that we wanted to cut through a lot of that because the science is so strong in telling us that there are things you can do that will cut your risk in half. So that's why, uh, that's why we went that direction. Oh, Dr. Mitch, thank you for adding that because, no, I did not know that. And, of course, as I said, I've, I mean, I'm hanging on your every word. I found it so valuable personally. But that added just another layer of uh, real interest in the book. And I promise I'll let you both talk in a minute, but I did want to read, um, uh, I hope you don't mind, but one of the reviews uh, that's on your website is by Dr. J. Levin, board-certified neurologist at Mass General. I want our listeners to hear this because he wrote, Dementia Prevention Summarizes Decades of Research and Clinical Experience into a Format that is Readable and Relatable. And believe me, that's right. Uh, And for anyone concerned out there about their own cognitive health as well as that of a loved one, Dementia Prevention will be an excellent resource. I recommend this book highly to my patients and their families. And I don't think it gets much better than that. 
That's true. It's we we really appreciate his uh, his very honest assessment of what we do, and, and we appreciate his work as well. Yeah, there's two things that really have stood out to me since we've come up with the book. This was published back in April. The first is when I have people, either we do a talk, or they come up and say, I read your book and it made a difference, or I get an email from someone that tells us how this they've been able to apply this to their lives, but also doctors. And we get notice saying, you yeah. know, this is what I recommend to my patients now. And that's really gratifying because we're really not looking so much for this as a book, but rather as the beginning of a movement, something that will make a difference in a larger way in terms of how we as a society deal with this risk that we all have of losing our memory as we get older. Well, and I know you're both involved in a movement, and as as your reader, I am very appreciative for that. But, Dr. Emily, I'm going to start with you, and I'm going to start off with a little bad news. We will get to the positive aspect soon because the statistics are really frightening. And um, I'm just going to ask you how many people in the United States have currently been identified with dementia, and out of that number, what about the number of Alzheimer's patients? Well, actually, we have a better grasp on the number of Alzheimer's patients uh, than we do on the total cases of dementia. So when you read that presently we've identified about 7 million people in the United States as having Alzheimer's disease, that really and truly is probably not just Alzheimer's, but a mixture of Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. But the, So the real total number of people who have dementia in the United States is greater than that because there aren't organizations that keep as good a track of the numbers of patients who have other types of dementia, like Lewy body disease, Parkinson's disease, or dementias due to all other kinds of neurodegenerative problems. So in reality, mm. we're probably closer to 10 million total than we are to the 7 million that the Alzheimer's Association claims as having Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, that is frightening and equally distressing. I'm going to throw this to you, Dr. Mitch, uh, because the, the predictions for the rate of growth in dementia in the future is no better roses either. No, in fact, we're expecting that within the next 15 years, these numbers will grow by about a third. You know, in, by the time we get to what, the year 2040, we could have as many as 14 million people in the United States alone. This is worldwide, but just in the U.S., we could have as many as 14 million people suffering from what in many cases could be prevented, but these are significant changes that get in the way of being able to think and remember and live their lives. So you know, 14 million compared to 300 and some million Americans seems like, well, it's only one out of maybe 20 or so. But when you think about the number of people in the target age group over 65, that's a really significant factor. It could be as many as one out of three. So that's, that's where we're really concerned because for every one person who's got dementia, you've also got a bunch of other people who are taking care of that person who has yeah. dementia. And there the costs and time and money just escalate. 
Well, now we can look at a little bit more a brighter picture here because you two are, like you said, Dr. Mitch, on a movement. And Dr. Emily, uh, in the book you identified 20 of the most critical factors. I know we talked a little bit about this last time, but I did want to go over it again because uh, 15 of these are changeable in adulthood. And from what I understand from both of you, dementia is really a progressive decline. So there are things we can do that if we notice ourselves flipping a bit, there are actual action steps we can take. Isn't that true? Absolutely, Eileen. You've got that right completely. So when we think about the the top 10 most common factors that are reversible in terms of uh, dementia occurring, we can think about uh, things like um, preventing anything that affects your heart in a bad way. So high blood pressure, uh, strokes, any diseases that affect your vascular system, such as diabetes, uh, you can any any bad habits that we've picked up along the way that affect our heart and our brain health, including cigarette smoking or, or smoking other kinds of, of substances, um, and drinking's right up there as well. Then there's uh, how well we breathe at night when we're sleeping, and that leads us to obstructive sleep apnea. And you can, um, you certainly can address that. And then there's the, the other big factors that go hand in hand and also contribute to heart disease and dementia, which are being overweight, not getting enough exercise. Exercise yeah. is perhaps the number one thing we can say that you can start doing today in order to start reducing your dementia risk. So that's, that's a good way to start it off. Um, Mitch certainly probably has some things to say about that as well. Well, one Absolutely, of the and I was going to say, Dr. Mitch, I know you've treated over 25,000 patients, so we want to hear what you have to add to that as well. Well, what I have to add is, number one, don't wait till you start losing things. That's really important. The earlier you start, the better the outcome. In fact, we know that people who have a, what we call a subjective memory complaint in other words, they feel like they've got a problem with their memory. Uh, four uh, out of the 10 of people who have a report of that in their mid-40s end up getting demented. So that's an early thing to start worrying about and paying attention to. And it's important to take a look at it from an objective point of view, get a little bit of testing at some point to try to just get a baseline so that later on you're going to be able to see are things staying the same or are they changing. But even if you have nothing wrong right now, you're thinking perfectly clearly, it still is important to look at your health factors because this is the time to make sure that they're all up to snuff. That's one of the reasons why we developed a dementia prevention checklist that we have for download for free on our website, braindoc.com. So you can go up and you can download this checklist. It's about 25 questions. It'll take you a little bit of time to go through. There'll be some answers like some blood tests and some blood pressure questions and such that you might not know off the top of your head. That's fine. You can get that from your doctor. In both cases, yeah. And in other ways, you'll be able to tell, you know, how much are you drinking? How are you smoking? How well are you exercising? Do you have a hearing loss? We now know that hearing loss contributes 
How interactive and involved are you with other people? Loneliness is a really important factor in happiness, but also in dementia as we get older. So what we want to do is get people to start taking a critical look at where they are now, because if it's something that just needs a tune-up, what a better place to start than earlier where you can make the most impact. Well, Dr. Mashiach, and I'm so glad you brought up the, the dementia risk checklist because that is such a valuable tool. And as you say, the earlier you start is great. However, <laughs> I will add a little caveat to that. I am in my 70s. Several of my peers are already in our 70s. And we can still do things, right, Dr. Emily, that can improve our lives and lower our risk for dementia. Absolutely. What we have highlighted in the book is reversible optimizable factors that affect your brain come not just from the research across the world, from the World Health Organization and major uh, epidemiologic studies in the United States and in the UK, but it also comes from our own practice. So uh, we have treated patients who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I had one person as old as 104 in my practice. And I can tell you, you could actually start and make these changes virtually at any stage and have a beneficial impact on somebody's thinking process. Oh, I I got goosebumps. So, you know, I saw somebody yesterday who was 94 years old, and she's got mild cognitive impairment. We had the same discussion with her than I have with my people who were in their 60s and 70s, but modified a little bit so that we are starting at a little lower level with some of the exercise routines and some of the tests that she had not had. She's still going to get. We're still going to talk about how she could improve her social involvement. And her hearing was a major issue that by itself I think is going to make a big difference and how she's going to perform the next time that I see her in a few months. Right, and at any stage in the process, it's always important to take a look at uh, modifiable factors such as high levels of homocysteine, inadequate levels of vitamin B12, inadequate levels of iron. These are fixable, correctable factors that can be addressed at any age. Well, I mean, that is so exciting to really, you know, go to the doctor, get a blood test, do some basic things, and for me and many others out there, get your hearing checked. And because um, the one thing, Dr. Emily, I know there have been a couple of new medications, but they really haven't been all that effective. Am I right about that? They, you know, when you take a look at you can get statistics to say just about anything. Um, but the medications have come out that need to be done intravenously as infusions are actually no, not any more effective than the medications that we have had available to us for the greater part of the last 15 years and that I've been using successfully with our patients um, over that period of time. Well, now, Dr. Mitch, you brought up, and we've talked to, you know, just kind of lightly covered it, that you are on a movement. You are going to start a movement. And because, again, to flatten that upward momentum of new cases that, you know, we are predicted to be uh, diagnosed in the future. So what are some ways, not only with individual patients, but you've got some ideas with other physicians. So tell us a little bit about your, your movement. There are currently 88,000 medical students 
there are about another 25,000 people in graduate programs for psychology. And then there's the people studying to be nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. These are people who are malleable. They're in training. They're looking for how they're going to determine their caregiving when they graduate. And this is also when they're learning the science and how to treat patients. So we want to put a copy of our book or something similar into the hands of every one of these medical students, psychology students, et cetera, so that they start out with a great basis for understanding the fact that they can do something with their patients from day one in their practice and make a difference with those patients as they age. A recent Alzheimer's Association study that was performed in 2020 of medical students as well as <clears throat> residents who just recently graduated from postgraduate medical training and were now out practicing for the first two years, across the board, about 50% of them said they did not feel that they had received in any way, shape, or form adequate knowledge about dementia, how to diagnose it, or how to treat it. And if you think about when you go to the doctor and you get your exam, does that doctor ask you relevant questions about dementia prevention? Does your doctor ask you how much exercise you get? Does your doctor ask you whether or not you drink alcohol, but how much you drink and how you drink it? You know, are you using a shot glass if you pour? Or are you just sort of free pouring? Uh, Catch up with what? Does your doctor check? Oh, I'm sorry. Has your doctor checked your homocysteine level, your vitamin D25 level? Chances are they haven't, and chances are they also haven't done a brief test to figure out on a regular basis what your thinking level is. I mean, they check your heart, they listen to your heart, they check your pulse, they look at your temperature maybe, they'll check your weight, they'll do your blood pressure, but an increasingly important vital sign is how well do you think? Yes, and I have to tell both of you, I am so sorry. There must have been some kind of technical difficulty because we lost some of your valuable information. But we will continue because uh, we'll, and maybe we could do another another session because this is so helpful to all of us. But I did want to um, ask you a couple of things. Uh, you had mentioned sleep apnea. That is something that we need to get checked, and you probably mentioned it, but we didn't hear that part. The hearing loss. But especially coming off of the holidays, I mean, all of us were, well, not all of us, but many of us were celebrating with alcohol. And alcohol, the jokes were you're killing so many brain cells with a, with a sip or two. But can we drink in a socially responsible way or do you, do you suggest we do not drink at all or differing types of alcohol or some worse than others? Can you share a little bit about that? The research doesn't show a preference for one kind of alcohol versus another. Nothing's better or worse. Uh, the, the question is how much of each, because you have to figure out the percentage of alcohol. So one shot of tequila or rye whiskey is the equivalent of about four to five ounces of red or white wine. It's equivalent to about 12 to 16 ounces of a standard beer because the beer is about four and a half percent alcohol so as long as you keep the equivalence in mind because I see people say oh I only drink beer and then I follow it up with well how many do you drink and how often do you drink them and also is this your standard like Budweiser type beer or is this a craft beer which may have as much as 10 percent alcohol because you have to factor that in 
You know, a drink, possibly two for men, on a fairly you know, standard basis, we consider it to be generally okay. We're not asking people to become teetotalers. Excessive uh-huh. drinking beyond two is not a good idea, especially binge drinking. You also want to say, when am I beginning to drink? If you're in a retirement community, many people start drinking around lunch. And that means that they have a whole lot more time in their day to consume yeah. alcohol without even considering the fact that they've actually had four or five drinks that day. That's not really good for you. And particularly, we know that if you have early signs of having memory problems or what we call mild cognitive impairment, it's really not a good idea to drink alcohol in any form Mm -hmm. because that's simply putting another burden, another toxic stress on a brain that is already suffering. Well, well, uh, a lot of us, uh, if we did drink over the holidays, are doing at least a dry January or whatever, but you've given us some real food for thought, or <laughs> I guess that's the way best to, to say, you know, put it, because uh, it really is important. And two, it's one of those things that you certainly don't need um, you know, to live on or anything. It's not like food where we have to have it. So it is one thing that we can really consider either totally abstaining or cutting way back on. And before we close, I just want to mention, too, Dr. Mitch, you wrote a fascinating article for the blog at Psychology Today. Can you give us a brief overview of that and where people might be able to find it? Sure. Uh, It's my Psychology Today blog, but the title of the blog is, Is Joe Biden a Super Ager? If you watch the news, you're aware of the fact that one of the candidates, former Governor Nikki Haley, has raised the question of people at age 75 or older, which affects both Biden and Trump, maybe they should take a cognitive test to prove that they're thinking well. Well, putting aside the fact that this is pretty much helpful to her, because either one of them leaving the race would help her, you got to ask the question of, well, what is normal for someone that age, and are they doing at least well enough to do the job of the president. And that's a pretty undefined kind of thing. So I do an analysis of Joe Biden since he is the oldest man to currently occupy the presidency and will be the oldest president if he gets reelected ever to hold that office. And the question is, how good does he think? So I don't want to spoil the ending, but I will tell you that that we examine this question in light of science. And I'm going to suggest that, uh, that people take a look at it. It's called, Is Joe Biden the Super Ager? I'll tell you, there was a recent thing just several days ago printed by the same title, amazingly, was published in a uh, newspaper called The Hill. That was not my article, but they arrived at basically the same conclusion. It was really funny because I looked at it and said, my goodness, someone else wrote the same article. And uh, the, the outcome is pretty much the same. Well, I have to say to you both, I can't thank you enough because uh, last time I, I, I didn't want to let you go. I don't want to let you go now, but I think we are about at the end of our time. And I really appreciate all the information you've both shared. Uh, I do want to get, please tell us your website again so people can go to find out more about you and your work in addition to getting this wonderful book. It's called Brain Doc, B-R-A-I-N-D-O-C. BrainDoc.com. Wonderful. And uh, before we close, do either of you have any final thoughts? 
just thank you so much for having us back on the show. It's great to be with you. I'm hopeful that 2024 is going to be a year of brain awareness and brain change for many people. So that's, that's our goal, is I want people to take action to improve their brains. Well, I am, thanks to the two of you, going to go take some um, action myself, get myself a hearing test appointment, get my blood tested, and do some of these basic things to make sure I'm on track. And I can't thank you enough. Uh, The topic is truly important and your book dementia prevention using your head to save your brain is not only information packed and a wealth of really important tips and ideas for us and strategies to keep us healthy but it's a great read it's entertaining and it's really a wonderful as i think the other doctor said it's definitely relatable so thank you for all of your help and thank you for writing this wonderful book and thank you for coming on again Thanks, Eileen. Great to be with you. Wonderful to be here. Okay. Well, until next time, we're going to keep our brain sharp, do what we need to do to do that. And this is Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Silo 50 Radio. Till I catch you next time. Bye-bye. She's adorable. She's actually adorable. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.